I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about. I think you need to come over, stand in my to shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Hello, it's good to have you with us. Today's bonus episode from the archives hits really close to home for me. It's about caregiving. So for the last several years, my siblings and I have been transitioning into more hands-on caring for our parents. It's something we always assumed would come. More than 20 million Americans are currently caregivers for a parent, after all. But so much about this whole thing has surprised me. How unprepared we've been for some of the really tough conversations we've had to have. How hard it is to maintain the positive parts of a parent-child relationship when the dynamic is flipped and now the child is caring for the parent. There have also been some really tender mercies, too. Ways that this new relationship with my parents and the ability to care for them has really blessed my life. I'm so grateful for that. But I could really use a handbook. Zachary White actually felt the same way after his mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he became her caregiver. Donna Thompson became a lifelong caregiver the day her son, who's now an adult, was born with cerebral palsy. The two of them, Zachary White and Donna Thompson, have written a book together called The Unexpected Journey of Caring. It is the handbook I needed. And I was lucky to get to speak with them both back in 2020. Here's our conversation. Donna Thompson, hello. Thank you for taking time today. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And Zachary White, thank you for your time as well. Thanks, Julie. I should also mention that you're a professor of communication at Queen's University of Charlotte. You research caregiving in your professional life. But I want to start personal with you. What was it about caring for your mother that you felt so unprepared for when it came to you? Well, ironically, Julie, at the time, this was some 20 years ago, and I was getting my Ph.D. at Purdue University in communication. So of all people, I felt I should be most prepared for a situation that, as you say, so many people face. But um, this became profoundly real to me when, in the course of diagnosis of brain cancer and then the uh, treatments of radiation that went on after that, there was the death diagnosis that so, so few of us kind of have a first-hand view of, and I was, uh, like anyone would be in that situation, shocked and dismayed and overwhelmed. Mm. And I was even more shocked by the family and friends, all well-intentioned, and the medical uh, establishment who kind of dissipated into the background after the promise of recovery uh, was taken from us. And I was moved by the people who walked into our lives at that time. For us, for my mother and my father, it was hospice. And the whole um, ecosystem of care of people who believe that that compassion and care need not always be synonymous with cure. And Donna and I often talk that the most difficult thing to accept and reconcile as a caregiver that oftentimes scares other people is that um, to be in the company of someone of which you love dearly but cannot change their situation. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, being a caregiver is countercultural. It scares people because you are telling stories and living a life that not only represents um, major difference for people, but it threatens their own assumptions about what is possible and their own threats of mortality and the idea that we can love someone so dearly and desire them to get better, but that desire doesn't necessarily change the trajectory of the outcome of their experience. The ways that that really challenges your relationships 
um, is an important part of this journey, something that I think a lot of people are surprised about, as you were. And so we'll spend some more time talking about that in a moment, because um, I think that's an important thing to help caregivers prepare for and figure out how to navigate. Donna Thompson, um, so you've been a, a, a caregiver um for your son, he's an adult now, right? Your son, Nicholas? Yes, he's 31 now. Okay. Um, and you also write about how you were, uh, you helped care for your mother before she passed away at the age of 96. That's right. And so uh, contrast for us a little bit um, the difference in caring, being, you know, a, a, basically a permanent caregiver for your son and then also being in Zachary's situation of a suddenly caring for your mother but you knew that that was going to be temporary because she would pass. Yes, that's right. It's it, it it's funny though. My mother started needing care uh I guess about round about the age of uh 85 or so where um she began to be more frail. She needed um you know us to begin to get her groceries, to begin to negotiate uh, hiring care workers for her, whom she subsequently fired because she didn't think she needed them. Um, I would say, you know, I, I've, I've often reflected, what are the similarities and differences in caring for all the people that I've had a hand in caring for all over um, many, many years, even with my mother caring for my dad? Uh, when I was a teenager, my father had three strokes and lived with us at home for two years before he died. Mm. Um, you know, and so I think the common thing is that when there's a crisis, and there are frequent crises uh, that punctuate um, the life of a caregiver, it's the same knot in the pit of your stomach, whether it's uh, our son Nicholas in a medical emergency or... It's my mother being threatened with eviction for refusing to stop smoking in bed. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's so there are similarities. Um, I think, though, where those, uh, there are differences in the context of my own personal experience, the personality and the background of the person has such an impact on how they receive care. So our son has had a disability from the time of his birth, and he is the most gracious person about receiving his care. My mother, on the other hand, had a very willful and independent spirit, and she resisted uh, accepting care. What, what are your thoughts on being a caregiver to someone who resists care, I think uh, anyone who's had even a short-term experience caring for a parent, it can be like that because you know it, it, you're you're flipping the um, flipping the power dynamic, right? Like they're supposed to be the one caring for you, and now they're in this um, area of need, but maybe they haven't acknowledged it, and you know, but you know that they need the care, but like it, it's very difficult to navigate that. What? Um, how were you able to work through that, Donna? Yeah, it's it's so true. Um, a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time trying to hide the fact, trying to masquerade <laughs> that I wasn't actually giving care when I was with mm -hmm. my mom. And there's a story uh, that we tell in in our book um, about, and it, it's actually uh, the story of my own mother that 
when I went to an appointment uh, with a geriatric psychiatrist to evaluate her for Alzheimer's, um, the doctor asked me if I was her caregiver, and my mother just turned her head very quickly and kind of glared at me, Mm. and I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not her caregiver, I'm her daughter. And then my mother put her hand on top of my hand and then just raised her chin and looked at the doctor out of the, the, her, you know, just looking sort of imperiously at the doctor saying, see, I don't need help. Yeah. Well, her, 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 her dignity, her, um, her identity was wrapped up in that. It, it, I guess it can be a very humbling, almost demeaning thing to feel like you need care. I think, and you know, Julie, it's also the same thing in terms of uh, most caregivers across our research of hundreds of caregivers across the care spectrum, almost all caregivers deny or obfuscate the fact that they are caregivers because it's threatening. It's to them threatening or to identity. the person they're caring for? Uh, well, like in Donna's situation, threatening to her mother's understanding of her own sense of, of power and relationship dynamics. But also, um, this is not a relationship nor a role that any one of us thinks about nor prepares for because it doesn't open doors for us. We think and dream about you know, job ocup- occupations, about marriage, about um, aspirational opportunities, but we very rarely think about what it means to be with another human being in which perhaps in many situations the so-called costs are greater than the rewards that define most other relationships. And so it's a real conundrum we call relationship confusion because it it also threatens our very sense of connection with this person. We're talking about family caregiving here. So none of us have the shield of um, objectivity like a medical professional might. So if we are a a parent caring for a child or a spouse caring for our partner, then this notion of our pre-existing relationship meets this caregiving responsibility And we ask ourselves, what is happening to the way in which I connected with my loved one? The one thing that I loved about my loved one, whether it was sharing deep uh, conversations, and maybe they're no longer cognitively competent to do that, or they feel guilty about this disparity in power dynamics. It's a real threat across the game. Zachary White, and then Donna Thompson, I'd love for you to chime back in, but Zachary White, what's the answer here? Is it important for caregivers to embrace that I am a caregiver, this is what I am, and find some sort of hope in that? Or is it is it perfectly healthy to kind of ignore that you're, pretend that you're not caregiving and carry on a masquerade like Donna was uh, was describing? Well, in a sec, I want Donna to talk about why the advantage of using the caregiver label as a form of advocacy in mm. the healthcare field and in the community. I will say this, that... Um, Inevitably, in an ideal world, one would be able to negotiate this relationship with your loved one, but that presumes so much. And so many of our insights come from conversations and interviews with caregivers who are caring for someone who may not be competent to have some of those conversations for a variety of reasons. Right. So something simple, you know, Julie, like giving someone a bath. If I'm a spouse and I'm caring for my loved one, my wife, um, and, you know, usually uh, kind of that intimate experience might change how I think of my wife, because no longer is that an intimate space in the way that I might have previously thought, but now I might see myself more as a nurse. And so some caregivers draw lines about what they, what they want to do, what they can do, and what is 
not possible for them given the realities of how they see their relationship. But this oftentimes evolves in time. Is it generally important or a good idea to try to maintain that um, mother-child relationship or partner-spousal relationship, at least, you know, to draw some boundaries so that, or, 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 or should you just embrace the, like, I'm your caregiver now and, you know, you need my help with everything and we're no longer mother-child or partners? Well, your relationship is the same and it's always different. And it becomes, if you don't recognize both, then I think that you find yourself frustrated and resentful on both sides. And so um, I think there are certain things that one must remain sacred in the relationship. And oftentimes we talk about those as kinds of what rituals or ways of connecting or ways of spending time with your loved one that reminds you of the connection that you previously had. And as you're evolving with your loved one with care as the center of this relationship, um, inevitably the the relationship changes. So to deny that would deny the endless responsibilities one has. And so it's an awareness of both and an opportunity to reach out to those who are doing this also this kind of balancing act Mm -hmm. of recognizing that they are both spouse or parent and caregiver, caregiver and spouse, caregiver and loved one. Donna Thompson, um, tell us about the the connecting with other caregivers is something you've done a lot as an author and an activist and a caregiver yourself. Um, Tell us about the uh, embracing of that identity for yourself. Well, it's it's been an interesting journey. I mean, one of the things that Zachary and I talk a lot about and we write a lot about is um, simply that caregiving and the role is full of paradoxes. It is many things simultaneously. So it's both a burden and a joy. Um, you know, when you are a mother and a nurse, as um, I was, uh, we ran what I would describe as a home ICU mm-hmm. for, for your son, son for, your for son, about well for 23 years wow. until he moved into a nearby care home, and now he has one-to-one, uh, 24-hour awake nursing care. And we, when when that happened, um, like Zachary said, I had to really proclaim my identity as a caregiver in order to secure support. I, I needed to uh, become more and more explicit over time as my son's uh, medical needs grew and we would be adding diagnoses to his profile and his care needs escalated. So you're saying, you're saying that you, you maybe you were inclined to downplay all that you were doing for him, but in yes. order to you know, request and receive government support or support from the insurance companies. And even our family. You had to be really explicit about just how much you were doing for Zachary. I'm sorry, for Nicholas. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. I did. And, uh, you know, at first I was very, very reluctant to do that because I felt as a mom, oh, you know, he's so easy. Why would I say that he was hard to look after? Why would I say that I was exhausted and falling apart from the burden of his care? I loved him so much. So I didn't want to portray him to anybody uh, as anything but perfect. And so, um, but however, I began to understand that I needed to be realistic, and I needed to be explicit, and I needed to tell people 
what was going on in order that they would understand. And I began to value my own role um, as I began to talk about it more. Um, I think we don't see care and we don't value it. Um, And I think for many of the reasons that Zachary articulated so well, it's just that we're afraid of it, we run away from it, it's something that we would never aspire to. It's also intensely private, and so we don't um, talk about, except in caregiving groups. I will say that there is an exception to this rule, Mm. and people are discovering, particularly online, uh, the safe spaces for for expressing what you're feeling and thinking and fearing, um, and even the small celebrations of um, uh, maybe something that people outside of the caregiving world would think, what, you're celebrating that? It's such a tiny thing. Um, Mom was able to swallow uh, a spoonful of yogurt today. It's the first time she's not choked on something in days. Something like that, something small. You can speak about it. People will understand. People will under, you know, crack jokes that are black humor with you hmm. and have a, an automatic understanding. Whereas, um, maybe coworkers, maybe even sisters, brothers, and members of your extended family have a great deal of difficulty in understanding what is going on at home. And not just understanding. They don't even want to. Right. That's just it. Like, not just understanding, but in some ways might be sort of repulsed or, or bothered by you bringing it up. Zachary, you actually blogged about this exact thing pretty recently on your website. Um, what is it about the you know, the experience of being a caregiver that that, that m- makes it so hard to relate to other people who maybe are some of your closest friends and your family members? Because it goes against everything that we're taught throughout our lives, that, that, that we're to maintain a family and friends who are, are great sources of social support, emotional support. And yet there's this experience of caregiving that comes upon us, that, are, we're, that comes at us, that we talk about, that... Um, we don't prepare for it, let alone we don't necessarily know how to begin talking about it with people in our circles of social support who have different experiences than us. And so we're met with the reality of, I want so desperately my friends and family to know what I'm going through and what's happening to my loved one and what's happening to me in terms of how I'm thinking about the world differently, what it's like to be near someone who might be suffering. But when you talk about and, it, what, what, what kind of yeah. reaction do people usually get? Well, people um, become very uncomfortable very quickly because people don't like talking about things that don't have happy endings. People don't like listening to things in which there isn't a cure. And we're talking about chronic care situations in most situations in which people are living with realities that are not going away. They are living with realities in which they must integrate into their relationship, their ways of making sense of the world, their workplace. And so it threatens the sense of life continuing as normal. As your friends and family are planning vacations three months down the line, you might be a bit resentful because um, you can't plan an hour out of where you are, let alone three months down the line. Mm. 
The greatest gift others can give you is an openness to be able to talk about your experiences in their full breadth. Donna talked about the complexity and paradoxes of caregiving. Friends and family, if you are out there, a gift to others is to simply allow caregivers to talk about their experiences in ways that might surprise you. It isn't only depressing. It is uplifting and exhilarating. And there are things that caregivers can teach us. And to listen to someone's reality allows a sense of connection with you and the people that you're sharing with in ways that create a sense of pride and understanding and a realization that you are not, in fact, alone. But the best way to make someone feel alone, Julie, Mm. is to hand a cliche on a silver platter. Mm, Like what? Like God only gives us so much what we can handle. Mm. And that, well, once your life returns back to normal, this is our normal. This is our normal for a long period of time. Listen to me. Listen to how I'm changing. I'm telling you something about me. I want to see if you are willing and able to go with me. I'm not going to ask you to do something that you'll be uncomfortable with, but I do want you to go on this journey that I'm creating for you. And without me, as the caregiver creating this reality for you, you have no idea what my life is like. Here's how I can imagine that um, that exchange where uh, Donna, you mentioned the my mom's so happy my mother my mother swallowed her yogurt today. So you text that to a close friend or a family member, someone, and and as a caregiver, I imagine you're looking. You know, I mean, you really are truly like you're not looking for sympathy or anything. Like this is, you know, this is a bright spot in your life (laughs) that this has happened. Yes, exactly. So what we celebrate when you're sort of in the thick of it, you know. Happiness looks really different from what it did yeah. before caregiving began. But the non-caregiver who you're communicating that to could very easily misinterpret that and see it only as, oh, my goodness, your life is so awful. And so their response could be, this must be so hard. I don't know how you do it. You know, one of those cliches could come out before they even realize what they're saying. You know, uh, you're so much stronger than me. I'm so sorry. Things are so awful for you. And that's right. And then you feel more isolated because you were not you weren't fishing for sympathy. No, that's <laughs> or right. Pity. You were looking for somebody to share something really great. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And it's it it is. Um, it's odd. Zachary um, talks in the book about the masks that we put on. Zachary, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. These masks are born out of a sense of vulnerability that caregivers are very keen and hyper aware of how people respond to what they're saying or not saying. And that's just a byproduct of the caregiver experience. And there's three masks that we talk about. And real briefly, one is the saint mask. And Julie, you kind of referred to this earlier, the idea that um, when you tell someone that you're a caregiver, everyone takes one step back and also at the same time says, oh my gosh, you must be a saint. How wonderful. I could never do that. And while this is a compliment, it's also a recognition that uh, saints don't have feelings. They don't really, we don't want to get close enough to saints to recognize that there's human frailty there. So uh, wearing this mask too long for caregivers can be suffocating and challenging. The other mask we talk about is the everything is okay mask. After getting feedback non-verbally and verbally from family and friends and others at work, caregivers oftentimes adjust and accommodate so much to, te- to tell the story that people want to hear that's okay, that's digestible, rather than the story that is authentic and lived experiences for the caregiver. So caregivers give people what they want, denying their own feelings, their own experiences, their own breadth of value in terms of what they're doing. And then finally, one mask that's almost universally acclaimed is the fighter mask. Everyone loves to cheer a fighter. We're fighting. We can't, we're not going to stop until we get a cure. We're not going to ever stop. We're going to keep on going. 
And while this is universally acclaimed in our culture, there's also challenges because every caregiver is a person. And in between those fights, who can you turn to when you feel vulnerable, when you feel alone? The in-between areas of fights require understanding and listening, too. Mm. And so there's nothing wrong with these masks, Julie. It's just the idea that sometimes caregivers get so far away from their own experiences because they are giving others what they want to hear rather than learning to tell an ex- to the story of their own experiences in ways that will reach out and bridge that experience. How can, then, a, a caregiver communicate more effectively to friends and family what they're experiencing and also what they need, what would be helpful for them as a caregiver. I think, you know, I, I don't begrudge or blame family members and friends who really, I mean, they're as, as unprepared to support a caregiver as, as most of us are to prepare, you know, to be a caregiver. It's just not something that our culture really is good at uh, helping people anticipate or, or deal with. So uh, Donna Thompson, what's something that you did to or have done to um, help the other members of your family understand your experience caring for your son, Nicholas? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Asking for help as a caregiver is very, very difficult. There are so many um, of our cultural norms and our personal histories that make asking for help very, very difficult. So, um, you know, I, I, I think of this um, one thing that happened to me that was began my journey of asking for help, really. Mm. Uh, I was quite overwhelmed. Um, it was just after a very major surgery uh, that our son had had, and I was so tired. I hadn't had any sleep. And my mother-in-law, bless her heart, I loved her, uh, but she was very frightened of what was going on. And so she would say to me regularly, oh, now if there's anything I can do, but I'm sure there's nothing I can do. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she was petrified that if I said, oh, please come over, you know, I'd ask her to change a surgical dressing or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I got so tired, and I said to her, oh, Jean, could you just make us a banana bread? And she said, I would love to make you a banana bread. She was, it was like I had given her a gift. And I realized after that that I needed to be careful about the way I thought about other people's lives, talents, abilities, and match my needs to what they could give easily. And so then, as technology evolved, I began to match the needs of our friends and family members who had offered to help with using technology tools and say, hey, we need a casserole on Thursday night. Can anybody deliver one? Mm. In a forum online where somebody could raise their hand and say, I'll help, and everyone can see that, oh, so-and-so is going to deliver that casserole. I'll offer to give a ride to a clinic appointment instead, because I know that casserole is covered. And being able to coordinate the help of family and friends using online tools is something that's new and uh, is available to caregivers now. What thoughts do you have for families um, when a parent is aging? Often there's more than one child, and 
it can there can be some conflict among the siblings about who's going to take what responsibility, who can do what, who's available, willing, you know, all of that. Um, even if all the kids really do want to be supportive, it can it can be very difficult to to manage that, figure out who will do what and and how um, and how to not have it ruin your relationships with your siblings while you're all trying to make sure that your parent gets what they need. Zachary. Uh, did, did you have other siblings that um, that you had to work with as you were caring for your mother? I did, and and the reality was they faced what most others do. They were working far away and um, still caring from afar. But uh, nonetheless, um, one of the challenges is the idea of how do you um, it, caregiving is inevitably. What, who steps forward and simultaneously people are stepping back. And I'd like to tell a different story that, that there's always collaboration. But one recurring theme that we hear is that um, caregiving typically is seen as an individual experience in American life. And that's not necessarily consistent with the needs of the care recipient and the kind of care coordination that Donna's talking about. But competency and proximity typically are the barriers for entry, and everyone else in the family takes a step back. And then the, the challenging part for caregivers in terms of their relationships with their siblings, for example, or other family members, is that the caregiver's point of view is oftentimes questioned or seen as questioned or taken as dubious or, well, that's your perspective or are you doing it right? And someone comes in for a weekend and has all the answers when you're left to pick up what they wrought the week after. And Mm -hmm. so it's this disparity between I have access to this loved one 24 hours a day. You come on the weekends and you have answers. You know, th- those are challenges that just don't go away, and they require ongoing understanding and, as Donna says, an ability to clarify what you and your loved one need and to be able to articulate what's going on when no one else sees what's going on. Yeah, in a way that doesn't make everyone else feel guilty, I guess, or seem yeah. like you're blaming them or, you know, because part of it, too, I guess, if you're the one that's that's there caring for the parent most of the time, you're seeing things that are upsetting or troubling, you know that, there, that something is a crisis, communicating that to people who can't, you know, come over immediately because they're across the country can actually make them shut down (laughs) because they're going to feel more bad and like they don't, they can't do anything. And it just doesn't seem like it's a winning situation. But like Donna said, I do think that um, articulating what is needed and what is most valuable, given your perspective and helping them understand that and only in the way that you can because of your privileged access. This is something that caregivers you know, have that others don't. I'm seeing mom or I'm seeing dad when no one else is in the morning, in the middle of the afternoon, in the evening. I can account for memory loss or physical capacity challenges mm-hmm. that no one else might be able to sense in a 10-minute phone call with him or her. And so I think, um, Donna, do you have any advice on terms of that, that ask in the family situation that might be a little bit different than uh, – friends from afar. Right. And, and what and, for, and specifically, Donna, what's something that a loved one who is far away can do to be supportive? One of the things that my sister and I discovered, I think a lot of this is about what you discover along the way, what's working and what's not working. Um, my sister actually lived in the same um, city as my mom. So she would make very frequent but short visits to my mom. And she would bring her things she needed. Um, But again, it was short. And I live about three hours away from where my mom was. was. And so I would drive 
for the day, and sometimes I'd stay overnight and spend two days, but a whole day with my mom. So that really was um, uh, uh, a gift to my sister um, because I was able to um, bring my mom and we would schedule appointments, multiple appointments um, that I could do because I was staying there. Um, And my mother loved the open-ended, long conversations because somebody who is elderly and infirm and, um, you know, losing their memory, you can't rush someone like that. And my, <laughs> my sister was trying to work and balance lots of other things in her life. And I was never in a hurry when I came. And I'd say, Mom, we've got the whole afternoon. What would you like to do or talk about? And that helped my mom um, a lot. And it helped her with the whole issue of meaning and purpose in her life. I I think what I was able to give, give her was the feeling that she was still mothering me. Hmm. And she loved that because I would ask for her advice and for her um her her thoughts about whatever was happening with our son and we would Skype him and she just felt as though she was being a grandmother and a mother, even though I was actually there to care for her. Thank you for sharing that, Donna Thompson. We are just about out of time, but as we wrap up, I would love for each of you, um, and Donna, since you're speaking, we'll start with you, uh, each of you to share something that was helpful for you in uh, in in the midst of the caregiving confusion and 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 lack of sleep and exhaustion and fear, um, what was something that that you found helpful to do in order to maintain a sense of hope, optimism in a very difficult period? Uh, Donna Thompson, talk to other caregivers who were experiencing something similar. So I befriended other mothers of children with disabilities. Um, early on in our journey 30 years ago, and I'm still friends with those women. Mm. And that gave me hope that it was possible to survive this experience and to come out with wisdom and love in my heart and um, uh, that it was survivable. So I think the friendship um, amongst other caregivers is really something that helped me enormously. Zachary White, how about for you? You cannot underestimate the value of what you're doing with your loved one. When I was caring for my mother, something we looked forward to in a ritual we began was sharing coffee. And throughout the course of her life and death, sharing that coffee was something we both did together. And then over time, I sat near her as we shared coffee. And then over time, as she didn't know who I was, we still shared coffee. It's what I told her in the evenings uh, I will see you in the morning for coffee. It's what we arose in the morning to. It's what I look forward throughout that day. Wherever you are in your care experience, identify those small moments of value. Hold on to them, speak to them, share them, and look forward to them. Zachary White is a professor of communication at Queen's University, Charlotte. He studies caregiving. And Donna Thompson is a caregiver, author, and activist. The book they wrote together is called The Unexpected Journey of Caring. And we had that conversation back in 2020. 
On next week's bonus episode of Top of Mind, an entirely different way of experiencing the world where senses blend together so words have tastes, sounds have colors. People with synesthesia can't imagine life any other way. They look at us and say, well, how can you enjoy music if you can't see it? How do you remember things if you don't... You can't see all the the colors and shapes and movements. That's next week's bonus episode from the Top of Mind Archive. Be sure to leave a review or give us a star here on the app where you're listening to our podcast. That'll make other people want to check us out so they too can feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.